0: The following episode contains sensitive content. It is recommended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: We acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which we meet and the land on which you are listening. We pay our respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the country on which this podcast was recorded. This podcast was produced in a private residence in Marrickville, Sydney and is a completely independent production. We do not act on behalf of any organisation or sponsor our views are entirely our own. You're about to join a conversation between two women from Sydney, Australia, talking about losing their loved one to suicide. It is unscripted. This is ordinary people sharing their lived experience. This is Talking Lived.
2: What you were doing do you do you remember anything about that moment
0: uh it was a, such a terrifying moment tanya um you know we hadn't heard from gabby i live about 220 k's away from where she was and on the monday night i got a telephone call from her partner who was in western australia which is a few thousand kilometers away he was at work on the mine site and uh, was trying to say have called me. Have you heard from Gabby? I said, no, I haven't. Um, I asked all of my sisters and friends, has anyone heard? Because we'd had this three weeks lead in and there's a lot of meat to talk about in between those three weeks, what happened then? Um, but by the time this day came around, I was in—I was sheer, living in sheer terror. And uh, my sister had been up on the weekend and visited her and said she's okay she's all right Um, you don't need to worry she's promised me this she's promised me that and uh, we'll be okay I didn't really believe those promises I I didn't take relief from them but at the time I was I was at work every day I was working in Sydney I had a pretty very intense busy job Uh, but I was living in sheer terror and and um because I knew she was on the edge and I was just terrified that at any point in time uh, this was going to happen or something bad was going to happen. So um, we kept trying to call her on the Tuesday and I had said, look, maybe I'll get a welfare check because we'd had a welfare check a few times from the police to just see that she's okay. And it had ended up being like embarrassing because they're like oh she's fine and she doesn't want you to come and she's okay and you don't need to keep checking on her and so I said to my family look I really think I should just get the police there and and just so we know and everyone's like no just follow her partner's lead and uh you know don't stick your beak in too much but I was just living in this sheer terror so by the Wednesday morning Tuesday came and went and still People hadn't heard from her and uh, her partner wasn't overly concerned because she could go for many days without being in contact. You know, they were used to having a long distance relationship and get caught up in things. So he wasn't overly worried. There was just things to do with their business. And I was terrified, but um, my sister said on that Wednesday morning about five o'clock I hardly slept at all in that time I was hardly sleeping and mostly trying to understand what I could do reading all the resources resources given to me and calling up people and asking there wasn't anybody I didn't ask for help um, you know psychologists psychiatrists all the helplines, every book I could get hold of, every little bit of information. I was trying to understand what do I do, need to do next. Every friend, every family member, every perspective. I was fully at it. And uh, my sister said, oh, i just feel a bit nervous about the dog, so I'm going to drive up." And she was in Sydney as well, and she drove up to Newcastle, and that was at five in the morning, and at about eight thirty, she said, "I'm at." eight o'clock I'm at the twin servos you know which is probably about 100 k's away from Gabby or maybe 80 k's and I said well you tell me the minute you get there because I'm beside myself and and as time went on uh, it came nine o'clock came quarter past nine I didn't hear anything and then eventually she called and she she said this thing oh it's not good news and for some reason when people say that I don't know whether you've ever experienced that but when people say oh it's not good news you don't think it's the extreme worst thing that could ever happen you sort of feel like oh well not good news is sort of okay it's not catastrophic so I kind of got a relief when she said that and then she said no she's done it and that was when I just I just was beside myself you know I was just couldn't believe it that now, you know, that marks the point where nothing can come back from that. And it was just like chaos.
2: Yeah, the world cracks in two, doesn't it? Mm. It's like a bolt of lightning. It's an earthquake. It's it's every... That moment is frozen in time in my head. And it, it actually, I think, it will always hold or reside in an emotional space in yes. me it won't ever leave yes that moment where i heard
0: absolutely never will and i i was um had a conference with this company in america for my work and they were ringing me they're saying oh we've got to. do you want to check up ask me questions and i said look i really can't talk to you at the moment i'm just waiting for a call and i have no you know can you just wait It's something pretty important and uh you know so you, you've got these big expectations of life still weighing on you and hang on a minute my life my daughter's life the person i love more than anyone on the planet is hanging in the balance but it had already happened and um, yeah that's yeah it's just yeah. wild i cannot yeah begin yeah it's, it's to tell anybody to, you know it yeah. it's a bomb
2: yeah it is it is a bomb Um, And ours was a Monday night as well, so Jason had had a period of time off work, where, and I use this phrase, it's it's not said to be disrespectful to him, because I hope it's not it it is the only way to describe what that two weeks before he died was like. He he ran Mm amuck, he he was creating absolute chaos. He was terrorising his daughters, threatening them with this, that and all the rest of it, threatening me. Um, He'd he'd been in and out of the family home. I left. He stayed in the family home. And then he left and I returned to the family home. So that was about two weeks into the experience. Um, So on the day he died, he returned to work after having been off for a couple of days and now found out that he had been sending the same kind of abusive emails to the workmates that he had problems with that we were receiving because we were getting really, really abusive messages. And didn't know any of this at the time. So, of course, he'd had a period of not performing at work. He was harassing and, and abusing and threatening the people that he was working with. He walked back into work and you can guess what happened. It, it's not a way to keep your job. Um, and they even tried to get... He kind of declared that he had suffered from anxiety and depression. Um, they tried to get him to take time off. He wouldn't do it. I'm fine. How, there was a lot of how very dare you. How very dare you make that – if you make that accusation that I'm not – how very – I just don't – I'm not saying his workplace managed it well. They probably made it ten times. I also can kind of see it is really hard to kind of have a conversation with someone that doesn't have an awful lot of insight and who's spewing a whole lot of abuse Mm. at you and threats so i'm not trying to make it sound like i'm sympathetic to their situation but it was a mess it was a complete mess and there was a whole lot of scrambling Mm. so we walked back in on monday morning um, and they said we, we cannot have you behaving like this to um the employees here even though you're an employee we can't have you doing this and he was dismissed he caught a flight then to melbourne And by about seven o'clock that night, he had overdosed. So it was a very short, compressed period of time. So the person that he was staying with in Melbourne, he was in their kind of the basement, lower ground part of their house. And they were the ones that found him. And they were the ones that called me. And I then had to tell Jason's daughters um, that their dad was gone which that also is now burned into my brain, as it is for them, I imagine, hearing mm. that news.
0: Were you expecting that at all or was it a completely out of the blue that he'd done that? I knew
2: it was coming. I, I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like and mm. I, I don't know that I knew he was going to, to kill himself or I, but I knew something really bad was coming. Yes, because he was threat. Some of the content of the threats were a lot of it was directed at us, but it was so dark and desperate, and it was like not to get all kooky and spiritual, but it was like something really bad had hold of him. It was like his illness had him hostage, had taken him hostage. So I can kind of understand why ye oldy times people talked about, you know, the fact that there was a confusion between possession yes. and mental illness because the person that we tried to communicate with in that last few weeks of his life, I don't know who the hell that person was. It wasn't the person I married, that's yes. for sure. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I knew that something really bad was coming because he was threatening. He said to his daughters... When I get hold of you again, you will know pain and suffering like I have known pain and suffering. And if anyone who had known Jason, those were that wasn't him. I don't know who that was, Mm.
1: but it's it's also scary.
2: It's also how because his daughters were young. One daughter was in her early twenties; the other one was still a child. Yes, that is some. Really fucked up shit to to spin at your kids, and I say that with love and compassion for him. But I got two roles to play here. One was a partner, but my bigger role was protecting those kids. And um, mm. yeah, so I knew something bad was coming because mm. when you start having conversations with like that with people, mm. you go, "This person's gearing up for something bad."
0: It's really interesting. The two things you've said that really have played on uh, that, in my mind, is about uh, the thing about possession and the thing about something bad was going to happen. I had that same feeling. It was this very intense foreboding. It was things are really bad. It was like, oh, if she killed herself, that would be the worst thing that could happen But I didn't think that was – that wasn't the only possibility. There was other things that could have happened. She could have hurt somebody else, you know. She could have gone and, you know, burnt the house down or (laughs) attacked uh, someone at the supermarket, you know. Anything could have happened. So it was that sense of foreboding and, like, I knew that it was a wall of something really bad's going to happen. I had that sense. And the thing about possession – Uh, There was an interval 10 days before she died where Gabby had been released from the uh, psychiatric hospital and was the last time I saw her actually physically in her presence and I looked in her eyes and her eyes she has these most beautiful blue grey slate grey eyes. And her eyes were completely yellow. And I mean, the blue of her eyes looked yellow. And anybody would have thought, oh, my God, you know, in the olden days would have thought, oh, she's possessed by the devil. Look at her eyes. That is not her, you know. And that's what I knew. And I don't know whether it was something to do with her state of mind, liver functioning, you know, whatever it is. But her eyes were not normal in any sense of the word. And... I had that same sense. It was just this terrible, terrible, oh, where's my daughter? You know, what is going on here?
2: Yeah, I had many moments like that. It's after um, Jason died. uh, You find things on computers, phones. We leave a huge digital archive after we die. Mm. He had taken hundreds of photographs of himself with lamps behind him, l- the lighting kind of—he'd obviously engineered or created a with the expression on his face. It looked demonic. Mm. They—they—it's some of the most terrifying shit I've ever seen. It didn't look like him, mm. um, and the girls found it on his computer and just went, "What is this?" And I, I. Th- now I look back and I think it was someone maybe in a really deep state of psychosis, mm. and he was trying to photograph himself. The inside. To, yes. Show on the outside how he felt on yes, the inside. That you've nailed it. Mm. I, I, that's the only way I can explain mm. it. Because yeah. he was kind of twisting his eyebrows, he was mm. deliberately trying to look menacing and frightening and he did
1: yes
2: (laughs) it worked um Mm. and the photographs were just sitting there i look we trailed back through who he'd messaged in in you know the months because you're trying to piece together exactly what what had been going on you know who had be who had he been talking to what had he been saying um and i don't think the for those photographs were never sent to anyone and it just makes you wonder wow, like there was a whole lot of stuff, the magnitude of which that I just think he didn't know, he didn't know how to process it.
0: So what kind of questions did you have at the time, Tanya? Uh, and, And what kind of questions do you still have?
2: I still, I think, have questions about the day that it actually happened because it gets reduced to really pivotal moments, doesn't it? Because yep. Jason made a decision. We, we know what mixture of drugs that he took and we also know that, again, because of the digital archive that people leave behind and if you can access those things after someone's gone... We know that he researched quantities of things, and how much. And absolutely, the question that was put into his Google machine uh, was, you know, what what quantities do you need of these things uh, to that are toxic that will kill you? So, those sorts of questions, we have answers in terms of the methodology the why, the deep why, and what is it that was within him and what was causing the sadness and the chaos, I think I'm going to continue asking those questions for the rest of my life, I Mm -hmm. think. I don't think there'll ever be a resolution because I come to different conclusions about what... What were the provocations, I guess? How about you? Do you...
0: Well, yeah, the questions I had on the day, um, you know, sort of relate a lot to... Well, I found answers maybe is the point and maybe I didn't find the answers straight away. But after I found out that Gabby had died, I am of the... I think I was on my own. I just cried for... Just pretty well screamed for probably about half an hour an hour before some family member arrived because my sister had contacted people and I think somebody from work called me and I just screamed into the phone to or not you know what had happened which was probably a mistake because then everybody at work had heard about it from this person who said oh I just called Joan and you know her daughter's dead and blah 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 so I became you know it sort of just, I didn't have any control over the environment. And I think it was something you'd said previously. It's a big exposure. It's a great humiliate, it feels extremely devastating and humiliating all at the same time. And, but some of the questions were, or, or what I really had thought was what is important is often the moment when you find that out, when you find the death of somebody is really important. So I knew from when my father had died and and other people that I thought, okay, I will be the one to tell people such as you know, because people like, oh, do you want the police can contact their partner and tell him? I said, no, I I will do that. So I, I told a lot of people myself, even though I was very upset, because I felt that moment I could put my hysteria aside for that moment to make sure that this person heard this from the source and not from a secondhand source or so anything else that was going to be more destabilizing. So I told, and then I was kind of why didn't you answer the messages? Why? I said, I knew she was like this. Why didn't you do? I was trying to keep her safe. And why didn't you respond to what I said? And it was only then that I realized that he hadn't been getting any of my messages because for the two weeks or three weeks prior, uh, I'd been trying to communicate with him to say, I can't be near Gabby anymore because of The circumstances that have happened, but you are, and we really, she's really in a bad way. We need to keep her safe. And what I hadn't known up until that point was that Gabby had intercepted those text messages to her partner and directed them to herself. So he was not getting the messages that I was sending out to keep her safe, and he didn't. He wasn't aware that of all of these other things she was hiding that from him because she said to me, Mum, if knows about this, he's going to leave me. That's what she'd said to me at some point the first time she tried to do it. She said, you cannot tell because he's going to leave me. And I said, well, Gabby, I can make that promise to you up until the point, whereas if I think you're at risk, I'm going to, I cannot make that promise to you. I have to keep you safe. And he, and she was really upset about that. So even then I feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that to her. Maybe I primed her to then guard against, you know, him knowing because she knew I was going to speak to him. She knew I was going to do what I saw to be the right and safe thing. And so the questions, you know, were really about, well, why didn't, why didn't you respond? Why, why, have, why did you go back to Western Australia when she was in this state, you know? And he really wasn't aware of any of, of that.
2: Do you think it's important for us to actually reflect on this? Honestly, do you think, reflecting on the day it actually happened, does it help us or does it hurt
0: us? Well, I know that I had to tell that story... (laughs) like, I don't know, would have told her story 50 times over. And now, three and a half years later, coming up to four years for me, um, I think there's there's value in it, in talking about it. You know, the word trauma gets used a lot. Is it overused? I don't know. I think there there is a kind of a panic that I have about the situation or... Or some of the things I do start to feel things again. Well, you never not I never not feel things, but sometimes I feel things more intensely or more acutely, or or I can feel things from more of a despondent way than a, a you know. There's one thing to say. Okay, these are the events. Just outline them in terms of you know sequence of events that happened, uh, and tell the story that way. And then there's the sort of intervals where there's feelings. And, you know, clearly there's feelings around the whole the whole kit and caboodle of this. And uh, I don't know. I, I like to... For me, I feel like what I need to tell is always the probably the three weeks or even three months up to before her death, to her death, because that explains more to me about what happened rather than just, you know, actually on the day um yeah and I I feel like it is healing for me as the person behind or as one of the people left behind from her death uh it helps to articulate I think my perspective and my view and a lot of people want to tell you their view when this happens like I don't know about you Tanya but I have this sort of simulation model in my head because I've done a little bit of modeling in my life so I have an excel sheet that has all the potential sort of causes of uh, her her death and you know I rank them the variables that contributed to this and you know I'll be sort of shifting those percentages around on that mental mental model to try and see you know outcome equals suicide and uh, you know, part of that will be my fault, her fault, um, father's fault. You know, the alcohol fault, the hospital fault. You know, all of that res- degrees of responsibility, and I'm shifting around. What What is the key thing? What What if I can adjust these variables and sort of just tweak one? Could Would that have meant she wouldn't have had the resultant death? So, and a lot of people will give us. Well, me their perspective. They'll people like to have things tidied up in a big, nice. Um, it, it's so uncomfortable to live with, and so disturbing to live with a suicide, uh, no matter how whether someone's close or distant from it, that they want to be able to put it to bed, put it aside, and they do that by making short stories and. Like I know what happened. It was a a plus b equals c, and that's what happened. But you and I both know it is way more complicated. Yeah. And I think as you get closer to the the bomb blast, um, all those variables are, are you know there's hundreds of them. And so I think in that way it is helpful for me to give my perspective because that is what is healing for me. And it's not that helpful to get other people's perspectives although I do ask people and you know even Gabby's friends and family I say, what do you think I brace myself for what I'm going to hear the answer because I'm scared that's not going to fit with what resonates deep inside of me or you know the story I feel like I need to tell myself uh, or that I'm trying to sort of come to terms with yeah for, what about for, you, Tanya? Do you for me? Uh...
2: It, it's almost not a choice, right? Because that moment in time, that day it happened. Although there was a whole lot of tragic things that have happened before and after that, and and the aftermath of it has its own. You know, you, you're dealing with that and how heartbreaking all of that is. But it just actually isn't a choice. There is part of me that will always be trapped in that afternoon when he died. Um, you can't, it, 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 it will be with me forever. Uh, so it isn't a choice. Yes. So when you're left with that, what do you actually do with it? Well, you kind of on some level have to work through it. So I, w- I won't say that I want to spend a lot of time thinking on that particular day, but there are times where you are just, something will trigger you, your day will be rolling along something, a song on the radio, um, it might be something about a news report or even a fragment of conversation that someone, and you'll be zapped back and it is almost like you're having a flashback to that day and that afternoon that it happened and you're back there and you're replaying it. Um, so you kind of can't avoid it. It doesn't feel like a choice. And I don't say I stay there and indulge in it, but I certainly do let it pass through me.
0: Yes, yeah. Yeah. I wonder, Tanya, is it more complicated uh, or there, there's an added complication in that uh, Jay packed up and went to another city? So in a way you could sort of look at that in so many places perspectives like, oh, he's sparing you the angst of actually having to find or you and the family the angst of finding his body or is it, you know, he's gone away because, you know We you exa-
2: all of that exactly those scenarios. Such a complication. It's, that's why I really like the way of you view describing it as a matrix. Mm. A, you know, is there a little... Can we assign a, a, a weighted risk, you know, <laughs> yes. a level of risk, and, and then can we calculate what was going to be the outcome? I love the idea of it being a matrix because those things spin off into infinity. Yes. The, Jason's daughters and I, you know, as a family, we've talked about the fact that, okay, did he actually go somewhere else because he didn't want to expose... the who the f- knows yes you know
0: yeah but yeah all those things spin around in mm-hmm. your head mm-hmm. yes because there's suicides and dead bodies are two different things in a way the, the the act of someone taking their life and that life disappearing from yours is very different to the you know a bodily actually having to deal with you know um, yeah the remains of a person yeah Tanya, do you think sharing helps? Like, why are we even talking about this the hardest of topics? But does it help us or hurt us in terms of healing?
2: I I think it does. I actually think it's the only thing that does help. And it's not even so much the content of what it is that you're sharing. It's the act of solidarity of being with someone else who's been through it, if you're able to share it with someone who's also been through this kind of experience. I actually think that I've found it healing. What do you think? Do you?
0: I feel fairly compelled to keep talking about it, Um, maybe less so now than in the beginning because it is so all-consuming. And I, I do feel, nearly four years into it, I do feel in a different place when I share the story than when I don't. And there's so much that I forget as well. So it's very helpful for me to talk because it's through that process that I remember some other things and go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that uh, because I can get very much down on myself and get negative on my own case. And it's the more I share, particularly with others and there's a sort of a shared experience with other people, helps to broaden out my perspective on what happened. Rather than having like a, a, a kaleidoscope sort of view of the mess, you know, I can have a, a much bigger sort of panoramic view of what happened, which I think does getting perspective is one of the key healing things, I think, on this, because I feel so much of it, I feel, is my fault, and clearly, I mean, that's very narcissistic kind of view, you know, to think, oh, it's all me, you know, well, clearly it's not, uh, but you feel like that, and you can't escape the way you feel, you know, there's no shortcuts through this, I think, there's no there's no fast way you actually just have to get through it you have to process it you have to we live it every day yeah so it is a relief and it is perspective finding to uh, share it with other people
2: yeah I I I love the way you put that because I I think how you share about it to start with is different because I've heard I don't know if you've heard the term trauma dumping Mm. that there's that When people have been through something really, really bad and traumatic, they tend to just spew it at people. Yes, yes. I did that a lot. Yes. And I think it was just I couldn't process what had happened. So Mm. anyone and everyone, Mm. you know, the person who served me a soft serve ice cream probably heard about it. The person at the grocery store probably heard about it in way more detail than they wanted to. So Mm. I think how you share about it changes Mm. over time. And I... I think there is. I think you use the term "digging" that you do. You're digging. It's more purposeful and meaningful, mm. and you do come to layers of understanding the deeper you go into it. Yeah. And it, it transforms from trauma dumping into something else. Yes, where it, that makes a bit more
0: sense. And and I think we have to trauma dump. I mean, it's yeah. too. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's given me a lot more compassion for anybody who lives like close to the void I think some people live close to the edge they're on the edge of that chasm all the time and I feel this experience has put me close to the edge of I can see how easy it is now to just fall in and and lose things and you know I think that trauma dumping is absolutely a a, a a a desperate plea to not fall into the chasm, you know, not to keep me here, keep me here because I can't be sure that I'm safe on this planet and that, you know, this terrible thing has happened and I don't know what's going to happen next, you know. So I I would be very, I would be compassionate to us (laughs) and kindly to us on that. And I certainly know I dumped on people and they know who they are and... You know, we could have had very big falling outs um, across the way if I had have allowed things to go further than what they did. And, you know, I guess I I ask for understanding from any people, if you've been around someone who's been through this, to go gently with them, uh, let them... Um, trust they'll take their time to do it trust they will get somewhere else and just be, uh, be kind and it's the last thing you feel like being to yourself when this happens is being kind but I think it's so essential
1: Content development and background research by Joni Janaway and Tanya Bretherton Sound, music and audio pre and post production provided by Paddy O'Rourke if this conversation has been difficult for you, if you're experiencing suicidal thoughts or feelings, or if you're just having a really tough time right now, there is help out there. Lifeline is available 24 hours on their hotline at 131114. The Suicide Callback Service is also available at 1300 659 467. If you're having a hard time and not even sure how to start the conversation, Remember that a trusted GP or a family doctor is also a good place to start.